Welcome to our Calgary episode 003. I am your host, Lucas Costello, aka El Costello, aka Papa Lucas. Thank you for pressing play. I hope you are staying safe in these times. And if you're struggling, please feel free to reach out by emailing connect at ourcalgary.org. I hope you had a safe and restful Labor Day weekend. It's good to remind ourselves on a day like Labor Day that our rights and public services, such as employment insurance, were won through decades of labor struggle and are constantly under threat. In this episode with Joel LaForest from the Alberta Advantage podcast, we discuss his recent article for Passage titled, Politicians Are Using EI to Rob Workers, Not Help Them, which can be found at readpassage.com and in the show notes. It weighs on me to think that what is now called EI has been completely eroded in my lifetime and that in a time of extreme upheaval, what should have been there to ensure a decent life for our neighbors has been used to balance budgets of government's past. Because it's Labor Day, I'm going to get straight to the pitch. If you like what you hear and you want to invest in the vision of a podcast that celebrates workers and diverse voices, think about subscribing for as low as three bucks a month or more if you can at patreon.com slash ourcalgary. Even if you're not in Calgary, I have it on good authority that there will be something here for you. Then I can give you a shout out on the next episode. If you can't, I totally get it, but please hit subscribe on your podcast provider, share, like, etc. Shout out to Mackie and Chelsea, the first two subscribers to our Calgary. You will be forever held in high regard by this show, which starts now. Calgary got on the line here, Joel LaForest, producer at the excellent Alberta Advantage, and as well as the author of a recent column in Passage, uh, can be found at readpassage.com, the title of which is Politicians Are Using EI to Rob Workers, Not Help Them. Joel also happens to be one of the smartest people I know in the city. <laughs> Thanks All for right. taking the time, Joel. <laughs> That's quite the intro and compliment. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, kill them with kindness, right? <laughs> no, for real. I, whenever I, you know, I have questions about the goings on of Alberta and in, in Calgary and sort of that historical memory of labor and of the 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 shenanigans of various incarnations of conservatism, Joel has been uh, really, really great uh, at, at helping me understand those things. So. Hopefully, uh, we'll get to talk about your article a little bit, and uh, which I think is super timely, and then uh, with special treat later on, too. So, Joel, I think this article, the reason I wanted to talk to you about it uh, and, and really get this out there as one of the first interviews is that I think it's super timely. We're facing unemployment at a rate that we've never seen before in Canada compounded by the fact that we were already seeing, you know, massive debt loads for people in, in the country and, and really globally, 
compounded by, <laughs> you know, the the extra challenge of, of what do we call it? Nineteen. Well, no, prior to. So this is. Oh yeah, the, the yeah. global oil. So prior, yeah. And oil glut on top of the, you know, McJobs, not McJobs anymore, but app jobs. What it was, there's a really precarious employment generally. Yeah. So the precariat. Yes, exactly. The precarious employment where I know too many people that are, you know, either doing Sedora or Uber and so on just to make ends meet. And then smack, we get hit by COVID-19, then complete collapse. Uh, negative oil prices and and so on. But I, I really, you know, I think the thing that really stuck out for me in, in the article, the one quote, if you don't mind me just reading this, is I, I think it summarizes it so well in the, the section, Robbing Workers for Fun and Profit. Grim title, grim subtitle, I guess. And so the, the, the thing that really just, it, it punched me in the gut when I read it was this, this particular line here. Uh, the EI surplus intended for the unemployed has been rated by liberal and conservative governments alike. Prime Minister Paul Martin used the fund surpluses to pay off the deficit, meaning banks and bondholders received worker-generated funds intended to support the unemployed. In 2010, the Stephen Harper government folded a $57 billion balance into the government's general revenues. Harper also continued, as Martin did, to use EI funds to balance the budget. Disgusting. Yeah, it's gross. So originally, my interest in this piece was just to like kind of uncover the EI or unemployment insurance, as it uh, was called in the, when it got kind of invented in the 70s, um, and just kind of document its high point. To me, it's like unearthing like a, a hidden civilization or something where people actually cared about one another or like the welfare exist, state existed and you had income supports that you didn't have to beg for. And so it turns out that high point was in 1971 when like if you were unemployed, you had a basically a 96% chance of being covered by the unemployment insurance program. And you had to just prove that you like worked a little bit in the past year and then up to 75% of your earnings were replaced by this program. Pretty good income support program. But basically got whittled away like government after government until at, at this point, like I think it's uh, about 42% of unemployed people actually qualify for the program. And then the extra, like, as you said, the, the extra gross part about it is that they, uh, they've restricted access to this program so that like less and less people qualify for it, but they've continued to just like pull in EI contributions like off of the payroll and have accumulated huge funds doing so. And then they just use it to balance the budget. So it's like stealing from people who work for a living who are supposedly paying into this program that's supposed to support them like if and when they end up unemployed and then using it to just do general revenues, to buy pipelines, whatever it is. Right. And I mean, I think, too, the, in that paragraph there, the thing that really stood out to me is, you know, we, we've we've had billions of dollars that we could be investing in, to use a kind of overused word now, but res, more resilient infrastructure, whether it be environmental, health, and so on. And there there has not been any appetite to do that, it seems like. And it, it's really this this imaginary thing of the the balanced budget, this trope 
which seems to work. You know, I feel like Gen X and a bit older, there that that is a thing that seems to still work. But I'm finding, you know, as as we we go down uh, to folks younger and younger, a balanced budget doesn't mean a hell of a lot uh, right now, unless maybe you're Stephen Harper's kid. So I, I guess the other question in your research in this article, what has been labor and or the NDP's response over time uh, to, to this particular gutting of, of EI? Did you come across any of that? Uh, well, labor has had campaigns in the past pushing for or just documenting what happened and and trying to like in particular Harper's like fifty seven billion dollar grab uh, to take those revenues uh, and put them into general revenues. Labor in particular had campaigns to fight that, but at least recently, like what's quite unfortunate is that there's been little to no traction from at least the federal NDP to reform EI, particularly when it comes to this pandemic and then the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, uh, the CERB. There's been not a lot of advocacy to reform EI or to expand it or do anything with it. Right. So where do you think the fall down is, is there? Do you think it is this strange thing that I think happened really, you know, as, as much respect as I had for Jack Layton and, and his accomplishments there, I also think it's, we have to be, you know, clear-eyed about some of the, the shifts that he, he brought to the party in the sense that he he did want to be more small business friendly and more sort of professional friendly. And I wonder, is some of that reticence to put EI reform back on the table a result of this desire to be more, quote unquote, small business friendly? Kind of. Like, I think it's less about like the small business friendly aspect and it more has to do with like just the different era that we're operating in. Um, the original unemployment insurance program came from like the the high point of the welfare state and of like Keynesian economics of like counter cyclical spending. Um, all of that kind of collapsed throughout the late seventies and eighties. The liberals of course did their work with like ushering in neoliberalism and balanced budgets throughout the nineties. And so we're, we're just in a different context now where it, the, the idea of like managing the economy is not that you want to maintain full employment, for example, like uh, that's nobody's said that out loud for decades, which is a real tragedy. But the whole idea of income support was like, oh, we should have everyone, we should have full employment, we should have everyone like working, and if they're not working, they should, they should have supports there to shore them up until they get a job again. Right. So it, it 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 imagines this context of full employment, which I don't think is part of the kind of political vision anymore, which is a re- kind of a real tragedy. So it has less to do with like uh, the who who maybe the federal NDP may or may not envision as their ideal audience or who they're trying to court. And I think it has more to do with like how their imagination has shifted through the decades from like the 1970s to now. Okay. And just because I am not the smartest person when it comes to economics, sometimes I, I like to, to try to be up on, up on my uh, economics. But so when you said, uh, what was the counter cyclical finance? Is that? Oh, counter cyclical spending. So that's just the spending, idea yeah. that like, um, the economy has ups and downs. Uh, when it's trending up, you you spend a little less on the public side, like as government spending, because the the, the private sector is arguably doing that and reinvesting. Then when the econo- when the economy is um, declining a little bit or entering a recession, you then the public government spending side steps in and to to sort of like 
counter that trend. Right. And in that period, it was when we were seeing easier access to EI, as well as a, a more uh, higher funding in, in EI, 75%. So right now it's at, what, 50%, 54 I think you said in the article? Oh, the replacement rate now is 55%, I think. 55%. So maximum of $573 per week. Right. So basically... If you were, and, and this is pointed out in the article as well, not to give the whole thing away. I, I think folks should read it for oh, themselves. By, by all means, it's all the stories. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, uh, essentially this does favor higher income from jump in that folks who, who are earning more are able to access more, but people who are lower income earners are putting in a larger share, if you will, of their of their income. Is that a- accurate? summation of that? Yeah, like part of it is just the, the proportion of income. But, you know, if you've got a huge income, the your payroll deductions, uh, if they're roughly the same as someone with a lower income, proportionally someone with a lower income is going to be contributing more. But what ends up happening, particularly with the EI system as it is now, if you made less or if your sort of income history over the past year was a little more spotty or a little hard, or like harder or from multiple sources, harder to prove, all, all these kinds of things, if you were more precarious in how you were putting your your income together, that increases the chances that you are disqualified for benefits. Whereas someone with like a huge salary that suddenly gets fired, um, they can easily prove their income over the past year and then qualify for benefits. So that's the, the kind of gross part of the I system as it's been transformed over the decades is that it gets, they're trying to find more and more reasons to disqualify you from qualifying for benefits. Right. And it, and, you know, I, I, I think about sort of, the various myths around people who are accessing uh, employment insurance is there's this sort of myth that people will just work for a little bit and then apply for, you know, these are things that have just kind of floated around that I I recall on, on AM talk shows and and so on years, years gone by, right? These are really powerful myths suggesting that people should not be able to access what they've already paid into. So how do you see folks, changing that conversation and getting EI back on the table as something that is actually able to help people meet their their day-to-day needs? Well, I think there, there's sort of like two avenues you can really pursue to counter these kind of gross arguments that you encounter. And the first is just to point out how precarious incomes are and how precarious the economy is generally in employment. Like as like the, the COVID-19 crisis kind of proved, as the old downtown proved, the economy isn't stable. It, like it, it doesn't seem or appear to uh, sustain people in a long-term way. It, it's increasingly risky. And I think as climate change sort of rears its ugly head more and more, it's only going to get worse. It's not going to get better. So I think that's something we need to sort of emphasize is like the conditions are becoming more and more unstable. And in addition to that, as the like as the emergency response benefit proved, oh, actually, here, here's the fun stat that I almost forgot. Even before the COVID-19 crisis, the, there were polls and research coming out saying that half of Canadians were about $200 away from going under, from not being able to pay their bills. Wow. And if you look at the polls uh, over the past few years, that varies from like the high 40s to low 50s. Like it, so it hovers around there where half the population is 200 bucks away from insolvency. That's not a sign of a good economy. Uh, and if we had governments that actually cared about people's like home finances rather than 
how the biggest corporations in the world are doing, they would actually pursue policies that put money in people's pockets and put and increase people's incomes and increase like incomes for people who work for a living. But we haven't seen that for decades. So uh, overwhelmingly, the discourse you see, particularly at the federal level, is about making sure the biggest, most profitable companies remain profitable, uh, which obviously doesn't help your average Canadian. So, you know, the most people are not faring well under the under the system. And a lot of people were really close to the, you know, the edge prior to the crisis. And conditions are only going to get more and more unstable. So if you think of all these things together, it's like kind of a no-brainer that we should have some sort of income support, some sort of like substantial safety net to make sure people can continue to live and continue to operate in a more and more uncertain future. Cool. So I just want to loop back to what you were saying earlier about full employment should be a goal. And I think, I believe you talked about this a bit on the Alberta Advantage podcast about how full employment, the advent of, of neoliberalism actually became something that was not wanted by corporations in that it created a larger surplus of labor. Is that correct? A summary of, of some of the stuff you've talked about on Alberta Advantage? Yeah. So full employment is great for people, but not great if you are a capitalist, basically. Uh, if you're a capitalist, you want to make sure that there's a line of, of people that want to get jobs at your factory or your workplace, whatever it is. If the last thing you want to do is get into a bidding war for workers and having to raise wages um, amongst your fellow capitalists trying to outbid each other for workers. That, that is a nightmare scenario for, for capitalists, so they don't like that. that. Often that leads to what's called inflation, which they say is very, very bad. But if you happen to be a worker and capitalists are trying to outbid you for your labor, usually that's great if you work for a living. So, you know, there's a, a difference in class perspective on inflation, good or bad, is kind of like the, the first thing. And yeah, more generally, the some of the most mind-blowing stuff I found when I was researching the the 1990s and the, the sort of economic policy of the Mulroney and then Cartesian liberals is that they engineered through like raising inflation rates and kind of depressing the economy, like double digit unemployment for years throughout the 90s because, because they, they were very, very afraid of inflation. And honestly, the, the kind of business lobby that they were friendly to was happy to have wages depressed and happy to have tons of people unemployed because that meant they could keep wages low. So, yeah, there, there's definitely a, a politics and a class politics to full employment versus, you know, having a, a healthy, what do they call it? Slack in the labor market is what they like to call unemployment. And it, it really is not to your average person's interest to have a high unemployment rate. Right. And I think Kate pointed this out on another episode as well. It would be much better to have Slack in, say, the healthcare system versus not having enough nurses and doctors as we're facing down what seems to be a, a crisis here in our healthcare system in Alberta due to the really grotesque and outright confrontational positions that the current UCP government is taking. And if you just look at the, the raw numbers, 64%, I think, of doctors in Alberta have no confidence in the health ministry. And that means, but only 66% of doctors in Alberta voted in, in that non-confidence motion. And it was 98% 
had no confidence. So absolute raw material, raw numbers, 64% of all the doctors in Alberta have no confidence in our government, which I think is not really helpful considering what's happening. It's not the greatest during the middle of a pandemic, I, in yeah. my opinion. I'm not, I'm not a health policy expert, but to me, having like a, an overwhelming majority of doctors in your province say, I have no confidence in how you're doing things, probably bad. Yeah, the, what's interesting is that at the same time that uh, you know, economic policy wants to see lots of slack in the labor market. You also, it, it's the same era in which you see absolutely no slack in the healthcare system or any any number of like public or social services. So it's like budget cuts for all of these programs and, and sort of like decades of austerity for them. And then not much for your average person, right? The doctor thing is, is bonkers. Like I can't, like what's funny to me is, is to think of like, okay, can you imagine like, an NDP government going to war with doctors? Absolutely not. Like they would, they would never. It's, it's extra well, funny if you think about the the history of like Medicare in this country. Tommy Douglas in Saskatchewan, when he uh, ended up bringing in Medicare, encountered a lot of opposition from doctors, and they they ended up going on strike against uh, the introduction of Medicare. It, it's almost like flipping it in my tiny little brain uh, to see a conservative government get on the nerves of doctors so badly. Like I, it, it's. I've never seen it before. Yeah, I mean, it's it is really strange because if you think about a lot of the small business tax outcry that happened in you know 2015, 2016, a lot of that stuff was coming from doctors uh, against the federal liberal government. Who obviously I'm no fan of either, but I'm not sure if those concerns were valid. I, I'm going to try to get a doctor friend on this on an interview soon to kind of discuss those issues as well and and they would have an even better sort of insight in, in the day-to-day on on this work but yeah absolutely right for the most part i have seen doctors more leaning toward liberal sort of progressive conservative territory i mean the ndp had a doctor run in lougheed against jason kenny calgary lougheed uh, philip vandermerva friend of the show uh, <laughs> and you know, I I think that to me almost was a signal, right? That, that here's someone in a class position that is typically not sympathetic to social democracy, we'll say. And here they were taking on the God King of the UCP. And I think that really should have been a warning signal to 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 what is now our current government that this was not a really smart play. And we've had some discussions about this before. I don't understand. You know, I think I've seen some chatter about how the desire is to basically make it unsuitable for doctors here who are in already existing in Alberta so they can bring in doctors from, from other countries. But at the end of the day, there's still going to be a huge challenge of getting recruiting talent from anywhere else right now because travel is so limited. So I just can't, I don't get it. <laughs> what, are, what are your thoughts? I, I, I just, I really don't see any political calculus in this. I don't see any, I don't see any yeah, positive end game for them in, in, yeah, in you're, doing this. I mean, you're right. It's, it's hard to figure out like, okay, what's the, the, you know, brain genius political strategy going on here. Uh, at, at most, I kind of agree with you. Like the, at most, the, their attempt to like make a smart move here might just be trying to hire a whole whack of doctors from elsewhere that will accept like lower pay maybe or or worse contracts or like 
so that that might be what's going on. It might also be that they like they don't care what happens to the system, right? They just want to right. immediately cut costs and they're not thinking long term. So it may just be as simple as that is like they want to bring costs as low as possible and whatever the long term implications of that are, they'll deal with those later or or they'll not be around later. So it's not the problem. Um, but they still have 120 or maybe 110 now because they cut it back on over a hundred million dollars for a completely ineffective and comedic war room, which that's, that's a lot of money. <laughs> you know, I think that that, that could be better used, <laughs> especially Doing, considering we just lost another uh, big investor in, in, uh, in the oil sands. Yeah, I mean, um, they're happy to throw money at doing like free PR for for like oil sands companies, uh, but they don't want to pay doctors. It's it's quite the uh, weird list of priorities. Yeah, it's it is quite mystifying. I don't know that I have like some people in their analysis like come up with like uh, oh they must be doing like twelve dimensional chess and have like a great master plan in these moves, and I don't know that they're that smart or thinking that far ahead. I think they're really just trying to like cut costs and they don't really care about the consequences or they're not afraid of consequences. Like a, a lot of the places mm. where these doctors are leaving or closing down their practices are in rural Alberta, which tends to overwhelmingly vote conservative. And um, it, it might just be that the UCP doesn't think there's going to be any consequences for what they do. Even they, they might even be able to or they might assume that they can absorb the kind of like political hit of having like rural doctors like leave the province and still count on those votes. So who knows? Yeah, I mean that's that is such a gamble. You know, I I, I think about it, and I look at it, and I also wonder too if it's just as simple as they had their four-year plan sketched out. You know, day one of government in 2019, and this is it. They're sticking to it. They wrote their scripts already for the most part. And then they just have to, you know, tweak here and there. But I think that the other thing too, that I would like to talk to you a bit about, you know, what can people do? Right. And I think that's, that's something you hear in, in everyday conversations. You know, I, I go walking down the street, I run into my neighbor and she's a nurse and she's obviously super stressed out about, everything that's happening and was already stressed out when they got elected at rightfully so because she had been a nurse during the Klein years. And so one of the interviews I did was with a teacher recently and her take was the ATA has, has not really been able to, to stand up in a meaningful way, if you will, to the UCP. And, you know, I kind of half jokingly, I, I would say, because I don't want anyone to, in trouble, you know, with, with their association or with the law. But I also believe that people have a right to job action when they feel unsafe. And that is one of the few things we can do as workers <laughs> to, to highlight the ineffectiveness or danger that our government's policies are, are creating. Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, ultimately a strike is the most effective way of exerting power as a worker. Like we've seen this government 
pursue a really like aggressive anti-democratic agenda, trying to criminalize a whole bunch of things, trying to criminalize different kinds of protests or job action. But ultimately, if you, in an organized way, don't show up for work, that can bring down a government, and it has in the past, and very well might do so in the future. So it's easy to feel kind of despair looking at everything that's going on, but ultimately, if you get organized with your coworkers uh, and more generally, like if the labor movement itself gets organized in a big way, they ultimately have the power to stop what's going on and to really make substantial demands. So that would be that would be my advice. And you know, it can be difficult for some folks that aren't unionized environment to say like, okay, like that sounds great, but I I'm not in a union or whatever, or I'm not in a position to really like organize my workplace. You can still reach out to unions, and it's going to be job actions in the future given everything that's going on. So show up to the picket line and ask, like, how can you help and what you can do? And you can absolutely get involved that way. Awesome. Yeah, I think, you know, that's actually a really good note. I'll put a bunch of union websites in the show notes uh, when I get to them. (laughs) And I think, you know, one thing for anyone listening, it's a good idea if you're not already in a unionized environment to, if you're an office worker or a retail worker, don't access the, don't look at the website from a workplace computer just to yeah, your own. Do it at home. Just do it at home. Don't email yeah. the union from your work email. Yeah. Yeah. Because you never know. It's really easy to, to come up with excuses for letting someone go without actually talking about the violation of their, of their civil rights. Cool. I really appreciate it, Joel. Do you have any other thoughts before we jump to the to next section, anything that, that you wanted to, to highlight from the article or any sort of stuff that had to get left out on the editorial floor? I guess we don't really leave things on the floor anymore because it's all done on computer. But <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, there's one little thing that it actually did get cut because it was like too like econ nerdy, but it is still mind blowing to me. Uh, so in the 1990s, the uh, finance department in coordination with the Bank of Canada were into a uh, Friedmanite economic policy called NAIRU, N-A-I-R-U, which stands for like the non-accelerating inflation rate something. Anyhow, sounds like extremely a like, yeah, it's extremely like wonkish, but it basically was the rationale for why they kept unemployment at like double digits throughout the 1990s. And it's insane. Uh, it's like the most ridiculous way to manage an economy that I've ever read about. And I can't believe that it actually happened. Okay. Can you, can you expand on that a little bit more as to why the strategy was to uh, cool down the economy to such an extent that you kept unemployment numbers high. So every time employment started to take up a little bit, you would increase interest rates for borrowing, which would slow down the economy, which would increase unemployment again. And so they actually had it as a goal to like maintain, I think, 8% like measurable unemployment, which translates to kind of like 10% effective unemployment, which is insane to have 10% of your population right. that wants to work not working. So basically, this was some sort of, you know, think tank or was it Friedman himself or someone yeah, he, in that school? Friedman had like come up with it and advocated for it. And then it got adopted by... Government drinking econ wonk heads, I guess. Yeah. Right. And just, you know, for, for folks who may not be familiar, Freeman is, was, is a terrible human uh, who <laughs> is, you know, directly tied to a lot of our social ills, instability, 
in countries in the global south and so on. He's Chicago school, right? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. So anyway, just real terrible human, definitely did a lot of damage in, in the pursuit of the myth of, of trickle-down and so on. Maybe that we, we can dig into that a bit more. I think that would be really good if you'd be down for it, having conversations on the sort of cultishness that has happened in Canada, especially from the Calgary School of, of Politics and Economics that has really driven a lot of inequity in, in not just this city, but across the country, throughout the world. Uh, <laughs> you could be down for that. I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> but, <laughs> like immediately? Sure. I, I no, 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 not now. I think, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, something yeah I think this is a good, you know, we were talking about doctors, which I think is a really good segue also into the... Sir Dr. Professor Colonel Kenny segment, which I will have a some sort of special effect for in the future. I think it will be like a robotic vocoder, Sir Dr. Professor Colonel Kenny. Sir Dr. Professor Colonel Kenny. Anyway, but we'll take a pause now just to, to give it a, a moment. Not sustainable. 
Amazing. Oh, wow. Amazing. Amazing. So just for listeners, I want to kind of give a little preamble to this and then we can, there's just, there's so much to pick apart here, but we're only going to spend about 15 minutes on this. And if that's okay with you, you got time for that? Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So probably going to be a, a hopefully a weekly segment. It's not with Joel, with, with other folks too in the future, but hope, you know, no, you know, don't have to guarantee uh, your involvement now, but it will be on recording. So it is kind of like a contract. <laughs> uh, just, it comes out of conversations that we've had where, you know, this guy who is trying to do conservative populism can't help himself, can't help himself in just spitting out gobbledygook and really over explaining certain things and often just straight up lying as as we both will attest to very shortly here. Yeah, so I, I think that's pretty much the extent of, of, of what we're trying to do here. I think, one, I think it's also important to point out the manipulation for folks who are listening so that they can have these conversations with folks in the workplace, with folks at home, with their parents, and so on, online, wherever, because almost everything he said there is obviously at surface truthful but also completely completely manipulative in what they are doing with the facts there joel it's time for you to knock them down yeah so i mean what's amazing is that he's saying this in the same month that he accelerated the corporate tax rate reduction so in July, like July 1st, the corporate tax rate, it was set, set to decline by 1% every year for, I don't know, four years or something. But it jumped from uh, 11% to 8% over one month, like July 1st. It, it made that jump. So uh, at the same time that we're reducing taxes on some of the most profitable companies in the country that basically exploit natural resources to make their profits or enjoy like huge monopolies over their particular sectors. At the same time that we're doing that, Kenny's turning around and saying like, you know what, we probably just can't afford doctors anymore. (laughs) Shares of pain. (laughs) So that's number one. Number two, Kenny does this with basically every sector that he talks about, particularly the public sector when he doesn't like their wages. He says, oh, they're the most well-paid in Canada or you're like, uh, you're you're above average in in all sorts of ways, and you're we're overpaying for what we get when in other provinces they pay less for their nurses or their doctors or whatever it is. And it's like, guess what, buddy? Cost of living in Alberta is higher because we have magical oil money swirling around, and it inflates the cost of everything. <laughs> if everything costs like ten percent higher in Alberta, guess what? Doctors are going to cost ten percent higher. That's just how it works. So did he say that they're the highest paid in the country? Because uh, I, I don't that's know if he's actually incorrect too. He or one of. He probably said paid, one right? of. He said one of probably. Yeah. So it's also like, guess what? Most people are very happy to like pay a brain surgeon a great salary. Uh, <laughs> 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 I want, you deserve I, it. You're going to walk around my brain. I want the discount. I want you to be well paid, my friend. Yeah, no, man. I want to go shopping on Amazon and actually, no, I'm going to go wish.com to find the, the most affordable prints. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not something you want to cut corners on, really. And, and you know, doctors obviously go to school for a very long time and, like, uh, you know, have huge loans that they need to pay back in order to, like, do that kind of schooling. And it's, so there, there are reasons why doctor salaries work the way they do. 
And it, that's not special to Alberta. That's kind of like across the sector within the country. So, so much of what he says is just like disingenuous and trying to like fool people into thinking like we're overpaying for doctors or that doctors too demanding. Doctors aren't even asking for a pay raise. Like they're, exactly. they just want things to stay the same. Uh, so frustrating. Exactly. And I think there's two things I want to just mention as well to, to point out the manipulation there as well is that, you know, he, he cites the good relationship with ophthalmologists. It has been pointed out in various spaces uh, online and otherwise, I think that, in fact, the head of the ophthalmologists association or whoever signed this open letter in support of, of Kenny is actually a major donor. cannot remember his name right now. I'm a little unprepared. I apologize. But I will, if you look it up, just look up ophthalmologists, Alberta, conservative supporter. Google it. You'll see it. Dude has given tens of thousands of dollars to the conservative project nationally, not just locally. So that in and of itself is just this sort of, you know, little wink to to his friends. And the other the other thing that I uh, there's two other things actually that I thought were really notable there as well that he he talks about our current fiscal and economic crisis. He doesn't talk about the fact that we're in a global health crisis, right? Yeah, he didn't mention uh, pandemic there for some reason. <laughs> so I just think that's that's a real tell right there. Whereas, you know, when talking about the oil and gas sector, which saw negative prices for the first time in human history, you know, he he was quick to to talk about the yeah, global real pandemic. Crisis. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's interesting how the global pandemic is only worth not a mentioning of his. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about the oil and gas industry, but not the in the, the the sector that is completely responsible for keeping us alive in this moment. So that, and yeah. then I think the other piece too that is really you know laughable in its evilness is when he mentions how other sectors have taken wage zeros, I guess, meaning, you know, no increase in their wages. That was, I believe, under the, the previous government. But if I'm not mistaken, the, a lot of the public sector is still fighting this rollback because folks had in the public sector have basically said, OK, we get it. There was a big collapse in, in oil in 2015. So we're going to hold the line here and then there's going to be x increase come 2019 and this was supposed to take place even prior to if i'm not mistaken prior to the previous election so you know again kind of true but not completely truthful is that accurate oh yeah like he he's clearly just being misleading and trying to provide political cover for basically alienating most of doctors in the province during a global pandemic. You know, it's most people who work for a living. Yeah, this guy who who legitimately has never actually done any work that isn't involved in political advocacy. I, I doubt he's even had a job in a restaurant in his life. Trying to tell people, you know, how to make a living. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, uh, one other thing I'm going to throw at you. I think on a... Is, is the UCP a death cult scale, 1 to 10, what would you put this? Oh, right now, the uh, the plan to just have kids go back to school uh, and 
telling teachers that they're responsible for keeping classrooms clean. <laughs> At the same time, they're, you know, you're, you're seeing like population increase uh, and inflation happen, but you're keeping the education budget the same. So well, that's effectively less money per student year after year. Uh, freeze is a cut. A freeze is a cut. A freeze is yeah, a cut. Yeah. A freeze is a cut. So they're cutting the education like budget. The per student funding is going to go down. But schools and teachers are now responsible for making sure a global pandemic doesn't spread through their classrooms. And they have no additional resources to do so. So that's pretty difficult to me. So this is like a 7.5, 8? Uh, I, I, I put it up to like 8, 8.5. 8.5, 8.5. Okay, cool. So, you know, whoever ends up listening to this, send us your ratings. Uh, is the UCP a death cult? We'll keep it going. We'll, we'll keep a running tally going. And we'll see what the interwebs has to say about it as well. Joel LaForest, thank you so much for your time, man. Look forward to doing this with you in the near future. And Sounds good. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Give Thank yourself. You Thanks so much for having me on. It was uh, yeah. yeah, awesome. Cheers. Take care. Cheers. About 100 years ago, Joseph Atkinson, the orphan turned newspaper man and editor turned publisher of the Toronto Star, pissed off a great number of his advertisers by saying of conscripted soldiers in World War One, "Those who do nothing have no share in the honor coming to Canada. We need conscription not only of bodies but." of wealth seemed like a very relevant quote considering that unemployment insurance was one of the big things that atkinson had advocated for himself for something like 30 years when it was introduced in in the 40s thanks for listening episode 003 of our calgary was written recorded on my phone and produced by me, myself, and I in the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, Siksika, Hainai, Pikani, the Sutina, the Stony Nakoda Nations, the Métis Nation Region 3, and the Treaty 7 Region of Southern Alberta. <laughs>